This is Jad Fair from Half Japanese, and you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCVN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Linda Gregerson. Linda Gregerson is most recently the author of the hot-off-the-presses Magnetic North, a book of poems. Prior to that, Waterborne, The Woman Who Died in Her Sleep, and Fire in the Conservatory round out her books of poetry. She also has two books of criticism, Negative Capability and The Reformation of the Subject. Her poems have appeared in the Best American Poetry 2001, The Atlantic Monthly, Poetry, Plowshares, The Yale Review, Review, Triquarterly, and other publications. She's been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship recently, the American Academy of the Arts and Letters Award in Literature, two Pushcart Prizes, and the Kingsley Tufts Award. She spent six years as an editor at the Atlantic Monthly. Um, the last position she held was the poetry editor there. She has taught at creative writing writers' conferences in Prague, Krakow, and all over the states, and is a professor in the English department here at the University of Michigan, both of Renaissance literature and creative writing. Um, welcome, Linda. It's great Thank to you, have you, Ashley. Really a treat. Um, she's also my teacher and mentor and friend. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's a thrill to interview you about your most recent book of poems, which um, we will have you start the show off by reading a little bit from, if you'd read um, The Turning. You bet. Okay. Um, and I think I won't say too much about it, except that it's based on a moment in an Ingmar Bergman film that in English was known as Winter Light. The turning. Just then, when already he's trying to leave improbably young and fair-complected, the absence of pigment, a kind of disease, he's come as a last concession and the church is cold. The other, the pastor, so palpably wedded to grief, he looks with envy at the fair one. Grief's addictive. It will hitch a ride on anything. And that's when it happens. Off camera, outside, some parting of the beaten sky as relayed by the gaffer, and the window for a moment floods with not that winter light from which the film in English takes, it names, takes its name, but winter scorched by heaven's high contempt, so that the simplest among us may see and understand no help. You dreary Scandinavians, my husband says. Your serotonin uptake goes awry and you decide it's metaphysical. But isn't... I'll grant the serotonin. Isn't that just the point? The cameraman makes his meticulous case for the folds of an eyelid, the decent proportion of table and chair, the unremitting body of the world in all its loveliness, and still 
the one who suffers is determined to be lost. He'd gladly sell his unborn child for one decisive scourging if it meant the one who scourges were for just that instant forced to show his hand. He's hopelessly outmatched, of course. The god of irony has such a long head start. And therefore, I think he stands for us, the pallid one, though he believes and we do not though he has been punished once for believing and once for despair while we confine our scruple to the mise-en-scene. He's all but gone. He will not live to see another supper time. The one who was to be his lifeline hasn't any life to spare, and so he turns, but barely, just the slightest movement sideways of his eyes as though to spare the one, the man of God, whose monstrous self-absorption is as lethal as a loaded gun, to spare him his own iniquity. The turning is a kind of tact. You see it still in country people. My uncle, when he visits, always sits near the door so his boots won't soil the kitchen. First the scorching, then the faithful have a name for this, the ordinary cold. Thank you very much. That's Linda Gregerson reading The Turning from her newest book of poems, Magnetic North. Well, in the middle of that poem, um, you write, you dreary Scandinavians, my husband says, <laughs> your serotonin uptake goes awry and you decide it's metaphysical. And I'd like to start by talking a little bit about um, the locations and occasions of and for art by um, digging into this physical and metaphysical. Um, on the back of the book, um, the New Yorker is quoted as saying, Gregerson's richest aesthetic allows her best poems to resonate physic, uh, metaphysically. And in this new volume, Gregerson makes clearer than ever before her passionate premise that the metaphysical only and always derives from our profound embeddedness in physical reality. <laughs> so will you talk a little bit about um, this physical and metaphysical and reality? Sure. <laughs> um, Circle around well, that <laughs> <laughs> Well, to begin with the comment in the poem, um, my husband, Stephen, um, takes issue with his appearances in my poems. He says, you know, other people get to be doing something transcendent. I'm always down in the basement, uh, you know, dealing mowing with the, the water. <laughs> well, I'm mowing the lawn outside or I'm dealing with the sort of flood in the basement. And, but I must say uh, one of the great trials of his life is my um, passion for um, Swedish and Norwegian films um, with subtitles in which, you know, dreary things were always happening. Um, the... I wonder if I even know what metaphysical is. I I hope um, it it refers to something um, that that exceeds our ordinary grasp. I think I, I hope it refers to some to to um, some longing for that which is elusive and um, maybe uh, m maybe. Maybe something that simply tempers the balance of what we have right in front of us. It's actually very hard to um, uh, to live sometimes with the equation uh, that we can make out of what's in front of our eyes and what's going on in the newspaper and so forth. But I do, um, I don't by temperament gravitate toward poetry that stays 
too many inches off the page or too many feet off the ground. I It gets real wafty for me. I mean, another way of putting it is maybe that I just don't have... Um, I, I, I'm not very good at abstract thought. <laughs> and so it um, the only way I get there really is through the concrete. And, and, and I guess there's another thing too. I mean, I shouldn't put it just in terms of liability. I actually believe really quite firmly um, that the most astonishing miracle um, of life is precisely our lodging in, in a physical body. I, I actually can't quite get over it. I think it really deep um, eludes us. I think our bodies are much, much smarter than we are. I think uh, we have all we can do to sort of catch uh, a glimpse now and then of the intelligence on which we depend uh, every breathing moment, if that helps. It does. Um, And this notion of being... um the importance of being lodged firmly in our bodies um, sort of leads me to a thought about um, this horrible question, does poetry have a place, which I won't ask you because <laughs> Thank I, you. I think it's just absurd. We'll just check that <laughs> one off and say I mentioned it. Um, but what I would like to talk, talk, talk about the ways in which um, poems are lodged in the body of humanity. Or the, the sort yeah. of, you've, you've been doing some thinking and writing about the social life of Absolutely. poems. Yeah, I hope, I mean, I say that the various occasional pieces and essays I've been doing are moving toward um, a book about the social, that I call The Social Life of Poems. I, again, I, um, this, this derives from some discomfort with ways in which the lyric poem has sometimes been mystified and lyric sensibility and its solitariness and inwardness has been valorized. I think um, in many ways that's true. Um, The lyric poem is a very good instrument for certain kinds of reverie, certain kinds of interior examination, certain kinds of uh, speaking from the heart. But it is also um, foundationally social. Um, after all, we, we publish poems, we write the words down on the page. We don't simply, um, we're not simply content to, um, to float in that not quite um, uh, articulated state of private reverie. And so I think it's very useful to, to think about poetry in what I call rhetorical terms. I mean, rhetoric is just, it can get a bad rep and make us all, you know, freeze with um, anticipated tedium. Um, but I, it, at the simplest level, rhetoric simply refers to that aspect of language that isn't strictly denotative, isn't strictly persuasive um, in any narrow sense, but simply has to do with the fact that it's, it's utterance, you know, between people that there is a social context for all linguistic activity. And I read somewhere that you you think of your own work as having these voices that are sort of a, a conversation within the... I, I hope so. It, um, each poem. Yeah. I, I don't think I usually write in a very consolidated voice. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll do something that is may approach for part of its length 
a thing we call dramatic monologue. It's it's written in a voice that seems to be situational. It's clearly not mine. Um, but I don't usually stick with that for the whole length of a poem. I, I like the fabric of a poem to be porous to multiple voices, um, to be listening in a way, and also often borrowing or even hitching a ride on momentums that, that, that I couldn't generate on my own, that are overheard, that are um, partly at odds with one another. When you're writing, is there sort of an epistolary c- component to what you're doing? Are you writing to somebody or are you, are you writing with that company of voices? Yeah, I, I, I don't think epistolary is a very common mode with me in, in, in that um, uh, it, it, it derives from, from letter writing, although now I suppose it would be email. It would be the scene. So. <laughs> well, there's, you know, and, and there is such a thing. I mean, there's an, there's an, there's an, there are idioms that are really particular to that and, and um, uh, pitches of uh, formality and informality and, and cadence and so forth. Um, I don't think there's a lot of that appearing in my poem at present, but I do imagine uh, speaking occasions. So I would say rather than epistolary, it's there might be conversational um, uh, spoken moments. As you're, rather than things sort of ending up on the page there, in terms of your sort of thinking about how you compose, do you imagine talking to or reaching out to, you mentioned the sort of conversation that poems are between people. They are on the page. They are published. Um, is it? Are you? Are you thinking of a reader on the other end, or yeah. are those readers discovering what's there? Well, without I, your sort of thought, thinking yeah. about envisioning them. I I do sometimes directly address a reader. It's usually for a transitional moment, um, and it's usually a moment. I'm thinking of a moment in a poem um, called "Bleed Through." Uh, that appeared a book or two ago, um, and it—I uh, mean, it, it, its alternate title might have been, you know, or a month and a half off Prozac. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was there was a, there was a very difficult moment. I was—I mean, I was—it was about me not behaving well um, and being, of course, hardest on those I most love. And there's a moment when it, it I, I, I think the voice gets very ugly. I mean, really very, very unlovely and says, do you like me, reader? Do you find me? You know, do you like me? Sorry now. Um, and it was that was meant to be very much at my own expense. Um, but I also didn't know how to manage the ways in which, you know, even when on the page we are writing at our own expense, that itself can be an ingratiating gesture, right? See how much I repent, what I did wrong. See how I'm trying to reach out to you, reader, and make an alliance uh, so that you know I know better, that you know I'm really a, a, a much more lovable person than this would seem to make me. And I just I, I wanted to do something that that also exposed the uh, again that very unlovely effort to uh, that, that that's entangled with confessional moments often um, and so it's 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 sometimes those are just those moments of direct address to a reader are often they're about a sort of level change or a shift they're a pivot kind of. Uh, and they're more a sort of moment of rupture than a continuous address. I do think 
of readers, but I think my acknowledgement of a reader is most often oblique, and I think it's probably important it is that way, lest it be, lest I sink to um, pedantry or the wrong kinds of frontal um, manipulations. Well, we're going to have to address directly our uh, listeners for the moment and take a small <laughs> break and tell them who we are. You um, bet. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Linda Gregerson, and we'll be back in a short after a short break, and she'll be reading some more from her newest book, Magnetic North. Listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Linda Gregerson, and she's going to read a little bit more for us from her newest book, Magnetic North. Um, would you read Sweet for us? You bet. Um, in this, you'll note there's a product of my research, actually, about the American um, opossum, and something that I was astonished to discover. It's really, really true, very important that you know this, that there is an average of 13 teats on the American possum, which I don't even understand. I thought all things in nature were symmetrical, but apparently not the number of nipples on the American possum. possum. So there we are. Okay, The poem is called Sweet, and you'll see it begins in a voice, not my own. Sweet. Linda, said my mother when the buildings fell, before you understand we knew a thing about the reasons of the ways and means, while we were still dumbfounded, still bereft, of likely narratives. We cannot continue to live in a world where we have so much and other people have so little. Sweet, he said. Your mother's wrong, but sweet. The world has never self-corrected. You Americans break my heart. Our possum, she must be hungry or she wouldn't venture out in so much daylight, has found a way to maneuver on top of the snow, thin crust. Sometimes her foot breaks through. The edge of the woods for safety, or for safety's hopeful look-alike, didelphus, double wound, which is to say our one marsupial, the shelter, then the early birth, then shelter perforce again. Virginiana for the place, the place for a queen, supposed to have her maidenhead. He was clever. He had moved among the powerful. Our possum, possessed of thirteen teats, or so my book informs me, quite a ready-made republic, guides her blind and all but embryonic young to their pouch by licking a path from the birth canal. Resourceful, no? requiring commendable limberness, 
as does the part I've seen, the part where she ferries the juveniles on her back, another pair of eyes above her shoulder, sweet, the place construed as yet to be written upon by us, and many lost, as when their numbers exceed the sources of milk or when the weaker ones fall by the wayside. There are principles at work, no doubt. Beholding a world of harm, the mind will apprehend some bringer of harm, some cause or course that might have been otherwise had we possessed the wit to see, or ruthlessness, or what, or heart. My mother's mistake, if that's the best the world as we've made it can make of her, hasn't much altered with better advice. It's wholly premise, rather like the crusted snow. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's Linda Gregerson reading Sweet from her newest book of poems, Magnetic North. In the last segment of the show, um, you talked a little bit about um, the occasion of poetry as a sort of occasion to, or, or a longing for the elusive or um, a way to temper the balance. Um, and um, when you were introducing this poem, you um, noted the, the 13 teats <laughs> on the, American, the North American possum um, and asymmetry. And the, the first voice that begins the poem talks about we can't continue to live with so much when yeah, people yeah. have so little. Um, inequity, asymmetry, um, as occasion <laughs> for poem, as a you know. Well, it's, you know, that's, boy, that's a difficult and huge and necessary question. It's a really good question. Um, the most conspicuous asymmetry, uh, and I think at some level it's there always when one is writing poetry, um, is, it's an immense p privilege to have the leisure and occasion and means of writing a poem, whether it's published, whether anybody else ever sees it, the time for reflection, the sense of, um, again, ways and means that this is a meaningful thing to do, um, is, is a lucky place to be. Um, it's not a place granted to everyone on the planet. And, uh, and there is a terrible, um, Scandal, of course, uh, that has to do with the unevenness with which well-being is doled out in this life. I think a lot of people want literature to both uh, testify to that, but also to somehow address it. And, you know, that's very difficult. I mean, on, on the one hand, uh, come on, let's do something real. Let's, you know, let's let's volunteer. Let's donate money. Let's let's not sort of sit at our comfortable desk and, and write about how uh, it hurts our hearts to know that other people suffer more than we do. On the other hand, um, and we must, must do everything practical and concrete we possibly can. But of course, it's never enough. And I think, you know, the spirit really suffers um, suffers from this this continuing scandal, this spectacle. And we we want to go somewhere to try to make some sense of it or to record our uh, objections to a world <laughs> in which this is the case. And I, 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 I think a lot of people, in fact, go to literature, go to read it, um, go to write. Of course, the, the, the immediate occasion for this poem, though it's there pretty 
evanescently is 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 nine one one. Um, when those buildings fell, um, masses of people <laughs> took to poetry in the wake of that. I think that was quite an eloquent um, sort of mass movement of minds and temperament, temperaments and attention. There was something people really needed, um, as well as uh, different kinds of um, action and speaking in community. And um, so th- that it, it, it's of course another asymmetry is 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 at some level the relative impotence of language versus the 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 devastations in the material world, whether or not malice is involved. It's not always involved. One of the Let's see. Let me back my 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 brain just went ahead of my of my voice. I'm gonna go back and rewind. Um, you are a scholar of Renaissance literature, and the Renaissance was a time when um, courtly and papal patronage was on the rise. Mm. Um, we are now in a time when um, academic patronage of poets is yes. on the rise. <laughs> this luxury you mentioned to to write this luxury of writing. Um, Is it possible to represent the, um, or how is it possible to represent the multiplicity of experience given that such an, of a chosen few are, are given the sort of patronage to create right. that contemplative space? Right. Um, a few different responses to that. First of all, I think patronage is actually a very savvy and accurate term. Um, Derek Walcott was visiting here a few years ago. Have I told you about this no, yet? No, no. Oh, it was such a funny moment. And of course, we had this fancy dinner for him and the president of the university who had given us the money to have these events was there and, um, um, and, and, and leaned over to Derek and asked at some level this very question. Well, what do you think about the fact that, you know, so many writers are lodged in university? It's increasingly. And I thought, oh, please, just please don't say anything too incendiary here. And Derek, wonderfully, he said, I think it's fantastic. It's you're like the Medici. <laughs> so um, there we. And but you know, of course, it's true for um, vast uh, terrains of human cultural and intellectual activity too. Um, by uh, on purpose and also by default. I mean, universities are the patrons of intellectual inquiry, certainly in humanities and and um, all those social sciences that basically aren't doing being pollsters, you know, in the pocket of some. Um, <laughs> Um, <clears throat> political group, um, but scientific research as, as well. And I, I, you know, there are there are advantages and disadvantages. But I think um, mostly uh, those of us who benefit need to get down on our knees and be real, real thankful. Um, I don't know that any occasion uh, or system of patronage. Um, looks very good if we construe it as the primary, uh, as lending a primary um, cognitive context or subject matter for poetry. Um, You know, Virgil wrote in praise of the Roman Imperium, but we love 
the Aeneid for all those places where it seems to us subversive and contestatory, where it really seems to record. It's not sort of written to flatter um, or in repayment for payment made, um, but rather um, in, in spite of all that, um, to record the ghastly costs of empire. Um, I think um, life inside the academy is not sort of adequate experience for anything, but I don't think it's particularly more inimical <laughs> um, to to writers or to conscience or to thought than any other mode of life. Um, I think poetry, I think any sort of writing benefits hugely from multiple experience. And, you know, the fact is the American Academy, and it's different than um, other academies one might name, uh, other national um, you know, sort of academic uh, vistas. It's a place where there are a whole, it's an immigrant population, a lot of it, not exclusively. Of course, we have, you know, um, uh, lineages of, of academics or writing families, just like anything else. But a lot of people um, have gained lodging um, and managed to uh, underwrite uh, inquiry, intellectual work, writing, uh, people in the academy who are first generation from real other stuff, um, whose families never saw the inside of a university classroom, whose families, you know, were, were repairmen and, and farmers. And I mean, certainly that's the case for me. And I think, um, I think commutes of that sort, the sort of shock of life altered, of trying to accommodate um, double vistas, um, of handling sometimes um, nostalgia, sometimes recoil, sometimes guilt about transitions or privileges that other beloveds haven't been able to share. I think those can be really important driving engines. They actually tell us a lot about class in America. Well, we're going to have to pause for a minute. <laughs> it's the top of the hour, so we have to do our station ID. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Linda Gregerson, and we'll be right back after a short break. Sing listening to The Living Writers Show. This is Ashley David, and my guest today is Linda Gregerson, and she's going to treat us to one more of her poems from her newest book, Magnetic North. If you'd read Father Mercy, Mother Tongue for us. I will. Can I say one thing first? Please do. Which is, this is a poem, and 
I actually, it happens to me um, from time to time, other poems as well, that's, that's haunted by a particular um, historical moment in America, which is the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl. And I was, I was teaching um, this wonderful group of um, sophomores and, and juniors today in, in my Introduction to Poetry course, and we were reading Robert Frost, and these are, I mean, these are just sort of, they're wonderful students. I hope, you know, one or two are listening. I love you. They're so wonderful. And we were just, they were talking about, you know, reading Frost and how it was different. I mean, we just swooped into here from reading Dickinson, and before that it was, you know, Herbert and Dunn. And uh, one of them said, and it was a wonderful moment, said, you know, I think um, we really have to consider, it, it, it feels to me like the Great Depression, you know, was a really important context for the darkness in these poems and the way they got written. And I thought it was just, I still love it because history is not always the first thing, um, you know, 19-year-olds uh, bring up when they're, when they're thinking about lyric poetry. Anyway, this uh, poem begins in a voice that is, I hope, conspicuously not mine. Father Mercy, Mother Tongue. If the English language was good enough for Jesus Christ, opined the governor of our then most populous state, it is good enough for the school children of Texas. Which is why, said the man at the piano, I will always love America. The pure products of the Reformation go a little crazy here. Red bowl of dust, correct us. We are here on sufferance, everyone. In 1935, the very earth rose up against us. Neither tub-soaked sheets nor purer thoughts could keep it out. Doorsills, floorboards, nostrils, tongue. The sugar bowl was red with it. The very words we spoke were dirt. There must have been something to do, My youngest said my youngest one once. This was worlds away and after the fact. We hoped for rain. We harvested thistle to feed the cows. We dug up soapweed. Then we watched the cows and pigs and chickens die. Red bowl of words. And found ourselves as nameless as those poor souls up from Mexico. And just about as welcome as the dust. Pity the traveler. Camping by a drainage ditch in someone else's bean field. Picking someone else's bean crop who is here and gone, and look where all that parsing of the Latin led. Plain Eunice in her later years refused to set foot in a purpose-built church. A cross may be an idol, so a whitewashed wall may be one too. Preferring to trust a makeshift circle of chairs in the parlor, harbor for the heart in its simplicity, her book. This morning, we watched a man in Nagadoches calling all of the people to quit their old lives. There were screens within screens. The one above his pulpit, so huge was the crowd. The one I worked with my remote, then turn. And something like the vastness of the parking lot through which they must have come, so huge, appeared to be on offer, something shimmered like the tarmac on an August day. Is this the promised solvent? Some were weeping, they were black and white. A word so broad and shallow, flee, so rinsed of all particulars, flee babble, said the preacher, that translations moot. 
The tarmac keeps the dust down. You must give it that. The earth this time will have to scrape us off. Thank you. That's Linda Gregerson reading Father Mercy, Mother Tongue from her newest book, Magnetic North. Well, we can't end this interview without, or we can't, we definitely can't end this interview without talking a little bit about form and formal invention. Um, sure. You have been well known for the tercets that were in your <laughs> books prior to this one. And um, in this case, you break from that um, yes. dramatically <laughs> in many places throughout the book, although the tercets remain in some of the poems. Um, but I'm wondering where and how you think about um, formal and experiment and invention. Um, as I've mentioned a couple of times in the interview today, you're both a scholar of Renaissance literature and um, a poet. And I'm wondering if you draw some of the rhythm and formal choice from your work as a scholar or from contemporary work that you're seeing or if organically form is popping up in the poems. How how are you going from one place to another? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I don't make many direct borrowings, I have to say, from the Renaissance. It's just, A, I, 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 for me, I just couldn't make it sail. Um, I'm afraid I would tend toward the antiquarian or something. It just makes me, so I'm too frightened. I, might, I just mustn't do that. Um, though there are, I think, liberties. Um, I think, I think uh, that, that, that aren't um, in, in, in the narrow sense formal, but are in the broader sense formal. Uh, forms of abutment, of shifting from one thing to another, of this quality we talked about a little earlier, of trying to be permeable to multiple voices, of letting something else sort of interrupt, that I actually think um, at least borrows from lessons learned um, from my beloved you know, 16th and 17th century writers. Um, I should also say that I don't, for the most part, work in what we call traditional form. I don't write sonnets. I don't write sestinas. I don't work in rhyme, though I might work in buried rhyme or alliterative things, uh, slant rhyme a little bit. Um, I wish I could. I profoundly admire my contemporaries who are able to move into, and especially those who move in and out of traditional form. I think it's a great gift. I think it's very much what our poetry needs. Um, I'm just not clever enough to do it. I, I When I work with um, received forms, when I uh, try rhyme, when I, I just, I, I just get really stupid. So I don't, I mean, stupider than I am. I'm not even saying I'm smart, you know, but I like, I get stupider than I am, which is really painful. And it, um, I, I somehow, that my notions get prepackaged. And uh, it's just, a, it, it, it's a terrible failing. Um, I, I, I plan to keep, you know, working on this. But um, but I do work um, metrically. I do uh, work very consciously in syntax. I do work in patterns of lineation uh, in, a, in a certain kind, in, in, uh, mostly in stanza forms, whether they're couplets or they're um, quatrains, uh, whether they're narrow or variable stanzas, variable lines. Um, and I find that much of a template actually really, really helps me, partly because um, the lineation is something I tend to use as over against the unfolding of syntax. So it's um, there's there's resistance 
for me then as I move back down the page and as also as I, I, I uh, pursue or allow myself to be um, um, captured by uh, the trail, uh, the logic of an image, um, the momentums of a voice or uh, gestures that are those or that imply personality whether it's mine or that of a very different speaker um the unfolding of an idea the trying to trace analogy or something that to have those two formal propositions syntax and stanza pattern or lineation um syncopated as it were is immensely useful to me it's not it's not emphatically a kind of packaging it's actually generative Will the stanza choices then come out of a particular bit of syntax good. or vice versa? Yeah, first? they do. do no, they? no, no, no. Particular. You're, that's a very good um, question. I tend to start. I, I fiddle around. I mean, I've got a piece of language. Um, I've got a tone of voice. I've got an angle. Um, I may throw a thousand. Sometimes I'll have a subject or something I want to be describing or something. Um, I may be. It may be um, ekphrastic. I. Uh, the most recent poem I finished, the only one I've got beyond this book, um, is it about a, a 19th century, early, early 20th century photograph. Um, and, and, and so I'll play a lot with language, not liking the tone, not liking the way it's set up, not liking the voicing, too formal, too informal, too occasional, um, uh, too dull syntactically. Um, but when I find it, I then start you know, working with uh, different sorts of lineation. And I really have to do that stuff very early. So it's really the case for me that, you know, lines five and six just don't get written until I've got a template that I'm that I'm working into. Um, I can't do that later without trivializing it and also without homogenizing the verse. So part of having to work in a fixed pattern is that it's a way of keeping myself off balance, actually, and 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 obligated to something whose arbitrariness is part of the point. Oh, interesting. So it doesn't then shut you down and, and sort of keep you feeling no, like a now in a way the that opposite. rhyme would or yeah, a sonnet would. Quite or... the opposite. So I think it's actually doing that work that form of other sorts does. I mean, I, I really believe that, that there is, there's something about a contract of expectation. For one thing, it just gives us a sort of alibi. It gives us this stuff to do so that, you know, the fact that we're furious with a loved one or, you know, having wounded feelings or sort of nursing anxiety um, uh, or, or shocked into pleasure by the play of sunlight on the icicles outside, um, all those things then um, can continue to push the poem, but it's not um, it's not as likely to run into mere effusiveness because it's also got this really practical set of jobs to do. You know, I got to find a way to turn the line here. Wonderful, thank you. Um, I want to end the show with a qu- quote from you that you've written. That you said somewhere else. It was, I believe, in, a, in an interview with City Beat you did when you were doing a residency at, at Cincinnati. In oh, Cincinnati, yeah. And you said that the difference between a poem and something that looks like a poem is that a poem that in a poem, both the writer and the reader have the opportunity to change, which um, sounds like a nice sort of summing up of um, what you think 
politically, artistically, and um, sort of formally about. Yeah, it's something I really believe. <laughs> yeah, well, wonderful. I hate to I hate to quote you, so you can't say it out loud, but it was so lovely, <laughs> and it kind of went right there. So, Linda Gregerson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ashley. It was a pleasure. It's been wonderful. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. You've been listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My guest has been Linda Gregerson, author most recently of Magnetic North. And you'll be reading tonight at 7 p.m. at Shaman Drum yes. on State Street. Thank Great. you. Well, we hope to see lots of folks out there. Thank you also to Chaz Barrett, our engineer. And you can find the archives for the for uh, the Reliving Writers Show through pot, subscribing to podcasts on iTunes by searching for the Living Writers Show. Up next is the sports report. Please stay tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Now, you can do it. The Daily Sports Report. You can do it all night long. On 88.3 WCBN FM, Ann Arbor.